A warm welcome to the November 2021 episode of the Uxbridge FM podcast. So we've done Halloween, Diwali and Bonfire Night. I don't want to be thinking about Christmas just yet, but a date for the diary is the Uxbridge Christmas light switch on. That'll be Saturday, November the 20th from 2pm with Christmas market, live music, performers and fireworks at 5pm. There's lots more events too on the Uxbridge FM website on our events page. Now, on to the podcast. This month, find out about running a market stall, hear about census research from the Uxbridge Library. We've got tours of Hillingdon Fire Station and the Beck Theatre, and we meet Shan and Phil Baker. We are joined next by Heidi Nelson. You work at the um, Pavilions Market. That's right, yeah. And you have the lease for the, the Wednesday Market. Now, going forward, obviously January next year, it's going to be pretty quiet in the market after the Christmas rush. And you're thinking of doing a bit of a promotion with some stallholders, um, getting some new stallholders in, people who are thinking of maybe starting out as a a market stall trader. Tell us all about that and why that's come about. Oh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we, we took over the market, which has been running for years in the pavilions on a Wednesday during COVID. Obviously, our busy Christmas period now, we're, we're getting very busy. But in January, we're really keen to keep it going and keep the momentum going and use the opportunity to invite new traders into the town. So we're very keen to find anybody who's got their little side hustle or if they've got some crafts that they've been doing, maybe thinking about and uh, an opportunity to showcase it. Perhaps it's something that they already do online um, and it gives them a chance to meet the public, try out what the customer experience is, etc. And you want a clothes store on the market, but you've obviously got a few years of retail experience behind that, so you can give people a few tips and a bit of advice about how to trade on a market stall, maybe? Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of people at the market that have been there many years. My background was with M&S. I was a retail manager and a buyer um, and a sales developer for many years, and I've worked for New Look and other retailers. So very much, uh, I suppose my job came about by trying to juggle family life with corporate life. And so that's how I started working for myself and and running my own market and then doing events. We like to be all inclusive in the market and anybody that's interested, we'd love to see them come along. And if they want to contact us, our email address is on the Pavilions website and they can always get in contact and hopefully there'll be an opportunity for them in January to come along. We're, We're wanting to do an introductory offer in January and really welcome new people. So you get a six foot table... In, on the market and then give us a kind of idea of what sort of variety of other stalls there are on the market and there's quite a variety isn't there it's a craft craft market mainly but there's quite a variety isn't there yeah absolutely there is a variety and it's very different to the normal market the other market runs thursday friday saturday and the craft market that runs on wednesday has lots of other stalls so you've got people that are doing crystals you've got people that are making things out of knitting, knitting their own things, crocheting. We've got people who bake, etc. So there's a whole variety of things, candle makers, wax, 
melt people, people with bath bombs, and lots of people. I mean, there are some traders that have been there over 20 years that have been doing it. Wow, 20 years. So it's nine nine to sort of 4.30 times, quite a sort of flexible timing, and uh, yet free parking up in the uh, Granges car park as well. So that's quite a plus. Yeah, definitely. I think that's what's really appealing. Certainly when I started out, I think you have to be quite hardcore to be outside in all weathers in the market. And so it was really appealing to me because you can park underneath. There's a service area underneath the Granges car park, so you get that included in your table fee and all you need to bring along is a tablecloth and your products and that's it everything's set out for you you can arrive anytime we try to be as flexible as possible so if you drop children off at school or something like that it's not a problem arrive by about 9 30 and then we usually finish up by about 4 30. Now I've walked through a few markets and seen people behind their stalls on their phones with their faces down and looking not very inviting what's a couple of tips if you're running a market stall maybe engage with customers would be the first <laughs> first tip. What, what do you do? Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting because obviously there's an awful lot of growth in online trading at the moment and everybody thinks that's how they do their shopping. But there's a huge amount of customers that actually love that personal interaction. And I speak to people every single day that say the reason they want to come into somewhere like our market is to meet people. I mean, we have people that go by Every single Wednesday, they might not buy something, but they'll say hello, we'll pass the time of day. And it's part of the community. And I think they really enjoy seeing that there. Certainly, we had so much good feedback after lockdown because non-essential retail couldn't continue to trade. It was lovely to have the community coming back in. And so many people say, oh, so pleased to see you again. Mm. But I think you're right. In terms of tips for somebody new going into something like that, I think you have to be interactive. There's no point in, first of all, sitting behind your stall. You want to be forward. You don't want to be in a barrier situation. I think you want to be walking around, looking at the products, chatting and interacting. There's obviously a fine line because nobody wants to be hassled when they're looking at things. But I think if people show interest in your stall and you, you've spent time either choosing things, you know, hand selecting, hand making, I think a lot of people do like to share what they've done. And I think people like to hear the story behind it and how they've come out with it. So I definitely encourage people to talk about their product. They, they're very good at sometimes promoting online what the product details are, but there's a very different interaction that's needed when you're face to face with somebody. And I think that's really important. A lot of big businesses started out in market stalls, didn't they? I mean, you do learn your sort of how to trade in that environment very quickly, I think. Yeah, and I think it is really important to have those skills to talk to people. I mean, it's it's still customer obsession, whether you're selling online or whether you're selling face-to-face -face in a market store. I mean, all the big retailers, Marks & Spencer started off with a don't ask a price, it's a penny, way back over 100 years ago. And I think, you know, there's lots of other retailers that have started in Camden Market, etc. So, yeah, it's a great opportunity to try out, really, your product and put it in front of real people and get immediate reaction. Um, because you can pick up an awful lot of feedback from what you have out in front of people straight away. I mean, obviously the sales speak for themselves, but online you do miss that personal interaction. You can see what's selling, but you don't necessarily know why they're buying it or why they're not buying it. And that's not always easy to see. Mm. You're not asking for any sort of long-term commitment. It's just month by month or whatever, week by week. Oh, so. no, absolutely. There's no 
tie in at all. I feel really strongly about that because I think it needs to be as flexible as possible. We have some traders, probably about eight to 10 that trade every single week. And that is their main source of income. It's also their main job and they are regular there. But also we have people that perhaps can't give that commitment to every week. They might just want to come once a month. And we might have some people that just do, you know, a few weeks and then they have a little break depending on what the product is. If it's completely seasonal, then it's quite right that they come at Christmas time. But what we try to do is we try to encourage people to come all year because, you know, we have people that are selling, for example, cards, things that are bespoke, personalised items, things that might be personalised boxes, memory boxes, etc. And those sorts of things happen all year round. Well, that's great. Thanks, Heidi, for popping in and telling us all about the craft market at the Pavilion. So um, contact details are on the Pavilion's website. Pop there. If you're a budding Richard Branson or something, you want to start a market stall, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. And the Pavilion's website is thepavilions.co.uk. Next up, Paul Davidson works at the Hillingdon Archives and Museum Service on the top floor of Uxbridge Library. They've been looking at census data and pulling out some interesting stories. The Census for England and Wales is a survey of all households. Taken every 10 years, each household completes its own return, which includes any overnight visitors on the day itself. Although the census collects data on every member of a household, this is not its main objective. Its aim is to compile statistics. These are used by government, organisations and businesses for planning purposes and targeting resources and services. Censuses are not new. England's first modern census was taken in 1801, though 1841 was the first detailed survey. At the time, information from the returns was handwritten by clerks or enumerators into enumeration books. In 1911, punch cards were first used for processing the information and computers were introduced in 1961. The data gathered has changed over time. From questions on flush toilets in 1951 to student accommodation in 1981. Reflecting a growing diversity, questions on ethnicity and religion have been added in the last 30 years. To protect personal information, the census is closed to public access for 100 years, although statistics derived from it are available much sooner. Once opened, they are an invaluable tool for family historians and can reveal much about social life in the past. From 1851, the census returns list each householder's age, birthplace and their relationship to the head of the household. They can be used to construct family trees and trace ancestry. The Ewers, one of Ricelip's prominent farming families, appear throughout the census. They occupied Manor Farm, then a working farm, as tenants of King's College, Cambridge. The 1891 census shows Henry James Ewer, his wife, three children, mother-in-law and servant Emily. At that time, many farmers employed domestic servants. The census shows Ewers at several Ricelip properties. Most can be traced back to a James Ewer at Hill Farm in 1851. James, Henry James' grandfather, was then 77, widowed and living with six adult children. 
With a farm servant, 11 labourers and 230 acres, he was a prosperous man. James also held Berry Farm, which was later leased to a James Bunce, who was listed in the 1911 census as a retired hay dealer. Bunce opened tea rooms on Berry Farm land to serve day-trippers, arriving on the newly extended Metropolitan Line. The railway spelled the end of Ricelip as an agricultural community. Manor Farm itself eventually closed to farming in 1933. The birthplaces of each household member are another vital source of information on the census. Did families remain in the same place over time, or were they migratory? If so, what factors caused them to move? The Grand Junction Canal opened through Hillingdon in the 1790s, enabling industrial goods to be carried from the Midlands to London. The 1911 census for Harefield reveals at least 10 bargemen carrying manure, iron and builder's materials. Their boats, whose names included Otter, Reliance, Hilda and Busy Bee, were treated as separate households. Many barges contained entire families. The 1911 census shows that many barge children were born along the canal system, from Paddington and Brentford to Hockley on the Stratford-upon-Avon Canal. Local musician Malcolm Carlo, who pilots a narrowboat on the same canal, can trace his roots to a Daniel Kempster, his great-great-grandfather. Daniel appears as a Harefield barge captain on the 1881 census. The 1891 census shows him in Southall, aged 47, captain of the Hound. His son, Daniel, 15, was the boat's mate. The younger Daniel went on to serve in the First World War, but tragically died from shell shock. From 1851, census returns also listed each householder's occupation. This included scholars, gentlemen, people serving in the armed forces, or those living on their own means. Using this information, an accurate picture of a community at work on a specific date can be built up. Nearly 990 people are listed as working in Harefield in 1911. We counted them all and came up with some surprising results. 14%, a sizeable proportion, were involved in farming or dairy work, as to be expected. 11%, mainly women, were in domestic service. 10% of the workforce were builders and decorators. 6% worked as gardeners or on local landed estates. There were 23 boatmen. There were shop owners, teachers, policemen and the first few automobile workers. The census lists a singer, an India rubber expert, a watercress cutter and two fairground swing boat proprietors. By far the largest employer though was the Bell's Asbestos Factory, whose premises adjoined the canal. They employed over a sixth of Harefield's working population. The census can also give a snapshot of life in urban areas, shedding light on poverty and unemployment, living conditions and immigration. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, several lanes and alleyways intersected with Uxbridge High Street. These yards were often the site of slum housing. The last were demolished in the 1960s, but some, such as Atwell's Yard, survive in part today. Bell Yard occupied the present site of Uxbridge Station. The 1851 census lists 120 residents, 
including families of nine or ten. They included four paupers, two street traders, a boot cleaner, a charwoman and a cattle driver. A more unusual inhabitant was Joseph Groman, a bird stuffer or taxidermist. Despite the relatively poor living conditions, in 1851 the residents of Bell Yard came from as far afield as Devon and Norfolk. In 1901, a Julia Harris, 34 and a widowed laundress, born in the East Indies, was living there. In the same year, Vito del Guidier, an Italian subject, appeared with a family of street musicians. Statistical information from the modern census is usually released to the public within the same year. The statistics are available online and cover everything from health and education to methods of travel to work. We compiled our own statistics from the 1851 census for Bell Yard in Uxbridge. They show the age of its residents, where they came from, the size of their households and employment status. Firstly then, how old were the residents of Bell Yard? It had a surprisingly young demographic. 50% of the people living there were under 20. Another 20% were aged between 20 and 30. Only eight residents were over 60. Only half the people of Bell Yard were actually born in Uxbridge. A few were born elsewhere in the Hillington area. Presumably their families moved to Uxbridge to find work. A third of the Yard's residents came from nearby counties, maybe following the canal or the Oxford Road south. Interestingly, about 12% came from elsewhere in the country. Despite there being a couple of very large households in Bell Yard, most were made up of no more than seven people. Quite restrained by Victorian standards, bear in mind also that some households would have included friends or extended family members. The most telling statistics relate to employment. Over 20% of the male workforce were listed as unskilled. These may have included labourers and carriers. Nearly 20% of adult women were listed as not working, minding the home presumably. These were different times, with the majority of working women employed as domestic servants. Like all historical records, the census can be full of surprises. During research of the 1911 census for West Drayton, a fascinating personality came to light. Charles Aubrey Smith, 47, a theatrical actor, resident at the Old Orchard on Mill Road. He was living with his wife Isabel, daughter Honor, a nurse governess, butler and cook. Aubrey Smith turned out to be no ordinary stage actor. He was a film star and cricketer, the only test cricketer to have a star on the Hollywood Boulevard Walk of Fame. Born in Hove in 1863, Aubrey Smith was a fast bowler, his action earning him the nickname Round the Corner Smith. He played for England in South Africa in 1888 and 1889, after which he prospected for gold, before returning to England. There he took up acting. He was business manager of St James's Theatre in London's West End from 1898 and debuted in American cinema in 1915. He was often cast as the archetypal English gentleman. Maintaining his love of cricket, he captained a team of British actors against Bradman's Australia in 1932 and once bowled P.G. Woodhouse for a duck at Lord's. If you want to find out more about your own census history, 
do visit the Hillingdon Archives and Museum Service on Level 6 of Uxbridge Library. We are open by appointment every Wednesday afternoon or on the first and third Saturdays of each month. You can email us on archives at hillingdon.gov.uk or phone 01895 250702. We will be happy to get you started. Paul Davidson there from the Hillingdon Archives and Museum Service. Now, from the peace and quiet of the library, we're hopping down next to the Beck Theatre in Hayes. We're going to meet Steve Sargent, who's the theatre director, and very kindly gave us a tour around the theatre. We're at the Beck Theatre in Hayes. We're going to find out all about the history of the theatre and hopefully have a look behind the scenes. Let's see. Hello, I'm Steve Parker to meet Steve. Theatre director. Right, okay, Steve to meet Steve. Yes, it's a bit confusing. He was right here just a second ago, so I don't even know where he's gone. Hi, I'm right. Oh, there he is, right here. How are you doing? Hello, I'm Steve. How are you doing? Nice and easy. Absolutely. What's on tonight? Have you got uh, an Abbott show tonight? Oh, wow. Which are good fun. They're a a lot of fun. So it's a council run theatre, is it? Council owned theatre, but it's not run by the council. Oh, right. So we, well, I programme. Uh, the theatre. Um, we are part of a, a, a larger group called HQ Theatres and Hospitality. We're the second largest venue operator in the UK. As the director here, I manage all aspects of the business. I run the programme, look after all the business, all the all the contracts and negotiations with promoters and things like that. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, predominantly we take shows that tour the UK rather than making our own work, with a couple of exceptions. Yeah. The Panto, I suppose, is the uh, yeah. That's right. So Panto is coming out is our production. So we produce Panto. We produce our summer youth project, uh, which happens in August. Has been going since 1987. Okay. And we also produce uh, a range of creative learning work as well, which is becoming a growing focus for us. So, what's the history of the theatre? Has it been here a while? It has. The theatre was built in 1977, and it was built with a bequest by councillor Alfred Beck who wanted to create a kind of cultural oasis in Hayes uh, which I guess in that time was uh, quite a different place in West London and suburban I guess but it very much following that that kind of uh, suburban ideal of of lots of green spaces lots of culture lots of uh, opportunity to better oneself and and yeah this building came out of that when it was built it cost about two and a half million pounds back then they did a good job. Everything that they put in here is, uh, has lasted really well. Uh, for instance, the chairs we're sat on right now, these kind of green velour chairs, uh, are original from 1977. Okay. Uh, and they get sat on every day, thousands of people a week. <laughs> <laughs> and how many does it hold in the theatre? Um, so we seat about 600 people in the, the auditorium itself. But we also do a range of other events as well. So, for instance, out here in the foyer, we do dining events with banquet tables and, and things like that. We, we sometimes do banqueting events on the stage as well. So, so we use the building in lots of different ways. But as a kind of traditional auditorium, uh, it seats about 600 people. Mm. So can we have a look around, do you we think, and see can. what's behind the scenes? Absolutely. Let's go. <laughs> the booking office. Absolutely. And then we, we follow up this corridor. It's quite a long corridor with a, a, a slope on it. We're, we're really fortunate in that you can access all areas of the building as a customer without stairs. We just walk up this uh, carpeted slope and through the double doors into the auditorium. Uh-huh. And while we're in here, you've got the, 
the sounds of uh, the guys setting up for the show this evening. And it's an ABBA revival concert tonight. That's exactly right, yeah. So you're yeah, expecting so it... lots of screaming women? or <laughs> are expecting of... lots of people who like that music. Yeah. Uh, and they're going to be having boogie, a boogie in the aisles tonight. I mean, um, ABBA really has a, had a bit of a revival, hasn't it, recently? That's exactly right. And just this week they've released a, a new album, which is fantastic, been very well received. Yeah. So, yeah, it should be a really good night tonight. And, and, and it's such a great space as well for these kind of shows because the auditorium itself... There's not a bad seat in the house, you know, and the seats themselves, they're quite big, they're quite comfy, we've got lots yeah. of leg room, they've got this, this really comfy green fabric on them. The carpet actually is, uh, is original from 1977 in this part of the building. Oh, wow. Uh, and as you can see, it's, it is a little bit 70s, um, with the two different brands there. When people come to put shows on, mm-hmm. do they bring entirely their own kit? It's a, it's a good question about the equipment. We've got lots of equipment in-house. These days, a lot of our lighting equipment, for instance, is LED because we want to be as environmentally sustainable as possible. Um, and also, we have a lot of our own sound equipment as well, so microphones and PAs and things like that all sits with us in-house. So we're just going to go down these steps now. So all of our dressing rooms are actually underneath the auditorium. Uh-huh. It feels like we're going down into kind of the, the bottom of a ship down here. There's not a lot of natural light, but we have tried to make up for that with the, these brightly painted corridors. Sorry. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, hopefully a little bit more inviting. Yeah, so we've um, got purple on one side. And then the other corridors as well are even brighter. Um, and the corridors down here are, are flanked by uh, these historic posters of, of shows that have, have come to the Beck in the past. So, for instance, we've had kind of Educating Rita here, which is with us probably 30 years ago. All the way around the backstage, there's a, a reminder of the rich history that we, uh, we have in this venue. It's had quite the life over the past kind of 45 years or so. And there's how many dressing rooms? So we've got eight dressing rooms in total, which gives us space for about 100 performers down here. So it can get quite busy. If we go into dressing room eight now... Are they all the same? Or are they VIP ones? They're and, uh... all different. Oh. Yeah, so all different sizes. And so this one's one of the larger ones. So it's what we would call our chorus line dressing room. So yeah. this is where, you know, the, the backing dancers would, would come and get ready for their show. And we've got lots of different tables and mirrors at both ends of the room. Um, and as you can hear in the background, you've got speakers that, that play exactly what's happening on stage. So when you are backstage, you, you can keep track of where the show is happening. Yeah, you hear your cue. Come exactly on stage. that. Hear your lines. There's yeah. a typical um, mirror with the bulbs around it. Exactly. Dressing room mirror. We love those. Absolutely. We've got plenty of these. <laughs> uh, and these, again, we've got so many bulbs backstage around these mirrors, but we've, we've converted them all to LED, so we're, we're to... continuing to be as environmentally sustainable as possible. It's one of our main focuses going forward. So this evening's company will be using some of our dressing rooms this evening. But as you can see, so this is one of the smaller ones. So again, in here, we've got the mirrors with the... Uh, the bulbs around them as you would expect in in the backstage dressing room we've also got shower facilities in here as well yeah and uh, as i say particularly during our panto season when we've got lots and lots of performers here for lots and lots of shows it gets very lively down here a lot of feathers falling off absolutely lots of feathers lots of sequins lots of noise (laughs) we operate as a cinema as well so we have the the cinema system uh, particularly with sound and, and we have a cinema grade projector as well 
uh, giving us this great big bright image uh, for those films. So yeah. Uh, still underground, under the stage, are we now, roughly? Yes, or exactly beyond. under the stage, yeah. So kind of the, the whole of our backstage area is, is kind of horseshoe-shaped. Kind of one corridor of, of dressing rooms and then the backstage area and then another corridor of dressing rooms. This one is uh, is kind of purple and pink as opposed to the purple and green that we had in the other corridor. <laughs> and uh, the dressing rooms down here kind of mimic the other corridor as well. So we've got lots of different sizes Lots of dressing rooms, as you would expect to find down here, with, with mirrors and bulbs and seats and performers getting ready for their show. And how fast stage from here? If you have your, if you hear your line, you have to rush up. It is just behind us, so we can head up here ah, right now right. to the to the side of stage. It's exciting going onto the stage. And it might be a bit noisy up here as well as the sound check for the seating show. <laughs> so you might wait here while you come on stage. That's exactly right. Listing yeah. for your... Um, alternatively, cue. we are a little way away from the front of the stage here. Uh-huh. Um, and you can't be seen from the audience as you head through this door. OK, we're backstage now. Lots of cables and brooms and drapes and things. Exactly. This is the magic of a, of a working theatre. So we've got lots of ladders, everything's painted black. We've got lots and lots of curtains and drapes and equipment and cables. <laughs> There's a lot going on in this space. Not too much to fall over there, hopefully. Hopefully not. That's exactly right. If we're doing our jobs properly, it should be busy but safe. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a bit of space, actually, back here, isn't there? Absolutely. It's quite well, a long the, way back. The story goes, because for the, the size of the auditorium, the stage here is, uh, is really large, um, and the backstage facilities are really large, and the, the story goes... Um, that actually when they were planning the theatre they were planning for the auditorium to be much bigger to maybe have 900 seats instead of 600 that we do have Um, but then uh, value uh, engineering came in and uh, they reduced the size of the auditorium to save costs but didn't reduce the size of any of the other spaces so we're really well served what that means is that we're able to welcome really big shows so we have for instance uh, Rock of Ages with us uh, in a couple of weeks which is straight from the West End uh, and we're really lucky to be able to fit that show on our stage, uh, even though we're not one of the biggest theatres in the country. Yeah. Really exciting. Some of my favourite bits back here are the signage, which again is from the, the mid-70s, and it's got that fantastic 70s font. <laughs> For instance, up here, halfway up this black wall, where we have the metal uh, stainless steel sign where it says no smoking in that really iconic 1970s font. Uh, I yes. love that. yeah. As if you would smoke. I suppose you would have done in those days. Back then you might have done, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nowadays it seems such a weird thing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's a blast from the past, those signs. Oh, I see we're side on to the stage. That's exactly right, yeah. yeah. And what's this bit here, sort of mini control panel going on? Yeah, so that's our prompt desk, essentially, is, is what it's called. Now, well, that's where the stage manager would sit during a show and they have what's called their prompt copy. Uh, which is a great big script full of all the cues. Uh, and also at that desk, they've got a headset so they can speak to all the other technical operators. Um, and all of those green and red buttons and green and red lights are a cue light system that links to lots of other bit parts of the, of the backstage area. So you can cue people on stage without them having to wear a headset or have a speaker. So it's perfect for quiet uh, scene changes. Let's keep walking around. What we do now is we'll... Uh, Head up to our control booth. Oh, okay, exciting. More doors. Oh, it's much louder here, isn't it? Through the PA. Exactly. 
Let's head this way. Okay. So what you can also see there is right at the back of the auditorium, we had uh, a table laid out over the top of the seats with a, a sound desk on it. And that is the, the ideal mixing position for sound engineers. Okay. Um, so they get to, to hear the whole space from the area and they can mix um, from that space to make sure that everything sounds absolutely wonderful. And we're just going to head through this nondescript door yeah. into our... Uh, this is another restricted area. Okay. But this is where our control booths are. Um, so this ladder here, this kind of big chunky metal ladder that goes seemingly up into nowhere uh, that's one of the, the routes onto our kind of rigging area above the auditorium where we've got lots of speakers lots of lights uh, very technical area that's how we get up there so that gets quite yeah. a lot of use okay. and just through here this blue door says lighting box on it Hello. Hello. we will find <laughs> lighting man absolutely so this is our this is one of our uh, fantastic technicians here at the back uh, and this is Nick, so he's going to be running uh, lights for the company this evening. What he's doing at the moment is just plotting in those cues, plotting in the uh, all of the, the lighting requirements for the show later on. Yeah. Good stuff. There we go, we'll leave him to it. Uh, so just round this corner, this is our projection room. So again, back in the, the 70s when this was first built, we would have had a great big cinema projector with lots of reels of, uh, of film. Uh, these days what we have is much more high-tech, where we've got a, a great big kind of black plastic projector with a touch screen on the side of it and uh, lots of bits of equipment underneath it. We actually receive a lot of our films uh, remotely, so they're not delivered to us physically. Uh, we, we kind of pull them down from the internet and they provide us with a key to unlock the film and we can then project them. But we're, we're right at the back of the auditorium here, so this is as far away from the stage as it's possible to get, yeah. which should give you a, an indication of just how strong this projector is and how bright it is. Are these two by the side spotlights? That's or? exactly okay, right. So, so these are two follow spot positions. Yeah. Uh, so when we have a performer on stage who needs their own spotlight, uh, and as they're walking around the stage, the spotlight follows them. Uh, we have two operators up here with two spotlights on, on kind of swivel stands. And as well, you can see on those stands, we've got the, the headsets. Now, they link straight down to the prompt desk where we were a few minutes mm -hmm. ago, uh, so that the, the stage manager can communicate with the lighting operators up here. We also have in this uh, section uh, something called Landsat, which enables us to pull down a signal from a satellite on the roof of events that are live streamed. Oh. And so, for instance, we do events that are live streamed from the National Theatre, from the Royal Opera House, or even from gigs across the world. And we can pull them down via satellite and uh, show them to our audiences here in Hayes. That's cool. Well, we'll, uh, we'll keep walking through. There we go. So, just behind us here, so this is our normal sound box. As you can see, we've got our big flashy uh, sound desk in here, which is a, a black and silver Midas sound desk. It's a digital desk, which means often the uh, uh, faders can move on their own if we need them to, as we go Spooky. from one mode to another mode. I know, absolutely. Uh, and also in here we've got two more of our colleagues. We've got Nigel, our technical manager, and we've got uh, Ellie, who is our technical apprentice. Hello. And they're, again, Hi. supporting the show this evening. Does it ever crash? 
very very rarely all of the all of the equipment that we have obviously is industry standard so it's designed yeah. to be as reliable and as robust yeah. uh, as possible You're so hot. normally it's operating forever if it crashes <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah of course there we go yeah. 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 No fantastic let's keep going around thank you so what we've done is we've just walked right around the back of the auditorium oh, from yes. one side to the other yeah so is there scenery somewhere, or is that um, so we, we off-site? have some. Um, we tend not to hold a lot of scenery in stock. Uh, we do have a workshop uh, under the auditorium, uh, but predominantly that's used for building maintenance rather than creation of scenery. Yeah. Um, as I say, most of the shows that we get here... Um, our touring shows so everything arrives with them in, in you know the back of a big lorry uh, and is unloaded through the dock doors uh, and what that means is that we don't need to keep lots and lots of materials on site because yeah. um, it all arrives and then it all gets sent away again no huge costume department either I guess exactly that we've got the, the old bits and pieces and we've got a laundry room that is largely just full of washing machines but uh, yeah aside from that we because we we're, we're not required to create our own kind of shows out of out thin air as it were we don't produce m- many of our own uh, we don't have to have much on site mm. and what's coming up obviously the panto is coming up absolutely so panto is coming up and it is you know the continuation of our fantastic family pantomime uh, Anne Hegarty is a brilliant star this year and she's going to yep. be absolutely fantastic what we've done with this panto is decided we're going to come back with a bang so this panto is going to be bigger and better than anything we've done before and we absolutely cannot wait <laughs> uh, of course it's Jack and the Beanstalk which is a family favourite and one of ours as well uh, just before we hit panto we've got Rock of Ages which is again that's with us for a week uh, and that again is a really exciting show everybody's favourite music in it there's some fantastic stars as well including Kevin Clifton are performing in that show and that's going to just be a riot when it's with us for a week Mm. Um, looking ahead to to next year what we've done uh, over the past couple of years is is really try to seek out the the highest quality live performance and bring it to the back and that includes you know we've got a private peace hall for a week with us in kind of March April time next year that we're really looking forward to We've got Some Others Do Have Them, which is a fantastic show. It is so funny. I saw it a couple of years ago, probably. I had face ache when I left. It is a proper <laughs> giggle. So that's coming to us for a week as well, kind of at the end of spring next year. Uh, and lots and lots of, of other real favourite shows. I mean, you know, we, we've got some fantastic live music. We've got world-class comedians, including Sarah Millican and Ed Byrne. In fact, just coming up this month, we've got Jimmy Carr visiting us, which we're really excited about. We do really punch above our weight in terms of the the quality of the programme that we're able to provide here for residents of Hillingdon and beyond. Mm. I suppose having a show for a few days means... There's not the hoo-ha of setting up. I mean, it's a big setup, isn't it, for a show? It can All be. afternoon, these guys have been setting up, so... Absolutely. You can be it's, here for a week. It's, it's a big undertaking. Yeah. Um, and actually, those what, what we tend to find is that those week-long shows are much bigger shows to begin with. So, mm. you know, Rock of Ages, as I say, came to us straight out the West End. It's doing a national tour. It's one of the, the, the highest profile shows that, that we've ever had here and exactly the same with Private Peaceful and some others do have them etc mm. and some really really exciting things coming up later next year that uh, are a little bit embargoed so I can't quite say just yet but check back with us for some exciting announcements to come and lots and lots of other bits you know we, we've got some really really exciting drama with Dracula and what we've really tried to do uh, particularly for the next season and the brochure will be landing very shortly next month is just really highlight the very best of what's available nationally 
bring it to the back. We're proving to people that they don't have to travel into central London. They don't have to travel far yeah. to experience that incredible night out that a night at the theatre can bring. Mm. And is there like sort of youth using the theatre, local theatre groups? or Absolutely. Um, um, and that's something that's really important to us. So as well as, as developing the kind of high-profile end of the programme, uh, we also want to make sure that this building is here for everybody. Mm. So as a result of that, we uh, support the Beck Youth Theatre with a kind of a, a show annually. We provide them with rehearsal space. But also we recently employed a new creative learning officer. And what that has allowed us to do is start to create a tailored, bespoke programme of additional activities, things that our local residents can get involved in, come here and participate. That includes a, a community choir, which meets here on a Monday evening, and that is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I walked past him the other day, and they're making amazing music. Uh, so that's fantastic. We're also, in the future, going to be launching uh, lots of other things, including including kind of a Beck Young company. In addition, it's not just about young people. We want, as I say, everybody to feel at home in this building. Mm. Uh, so we also do things like dementia-friendly film screenings in order to you know, be able to welcome some of our, our older neighbours into the building. And that, again, it, it just all feeds into our belief that theatre buildings should be for everybody. The other thing I would say is that over the past few years, a lot of us have uh, thought a lot about what we want to do and where our priorities are. If the Beck isn't somewhere you've been recently, isn't somewhere you plan to go, let us know why. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn. Mm. As I say, our doors, they're open for everybody. We want to be able to welcome every person in the area into this building for a fantastic night or to participate or to come and you know, experience what it is to, to be inside a theatre. So if you have any thoughts about that, find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter or Instagram, drop us a message, uh, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Great stuff. Thanks, Steve. Steve Sargent there, theatre director at the Beck Theatre in Hayes. Another tour next. Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes at a fire station or what's in all those lockers at the side of a fire engine? Well, let's catch up next with station commander at Hillingdon Fire Station, Glenn Nicolades, and we start our tour of the station in the office areas. Upstairs is fire safety. Yeah. Um, they're all the regulation departments, so they go out and inspect all the businesses. Uh, my office is obviously opposite that. Yeah. So this is what we call a community area. So this would be where we have either um, events here, members of public, my office, my public commander's office, and then we go into the strictly firefighter area. Um, we're coming to the gym now. Yep, yeah. so we're in the gym. State-of-the-art running machine, probably better than something you'll get in your local gym. With yeah. A big flat-screen telly. Uh, you've got the running machines, CrossFit, barbells, all that's in here. There's a room for drying all the equipment, because you can imagine you come back from the snow or rain or whatever. Dingy. <laughs> it's a drying room, but they... <laughs> typical firefighters have swapped the letters round. Yeah. It's not the dingy room, that's the drying room. <laughs> There's a nice mirror there so you can watch yourself flexing your muscles. This is the BA room, so breathing apparatus room. So this okay. room here is completely sterile. So the cleaner doesn't come in here, it doesn't look clean, but when I say sterile, I mean we haven't had any food, any drink. The only thing that's allowed in here is water, because this is where we clean all our rubber masks and stuff, okay. and they can't be contaminated with grease. So although it doesn't look really, really shining clean, it has no grease in here. 
So that's why I call it a sterile room. So we've got spare equipment for the breathing apparatus and stuff. Got some small oxygen cylinders there. These here are for, um, if, uh, you know, if we rescue someone, we need to put air on them. That's what they are for. Um, we've got special wipes for our breathing apparatus and we've got spare cylinders which go on the back. Okay. And they hold uh, 300 bar each. So how many minutes would you get off one of those? 30 minutes, but that's if you breathe at 50 litres a minute. I mean, I don't know if your maths are any good, but that's uh, actually breathing quite slowly. Um, usually a firefighter will go in, if, if we had a standard house with two bedrooms, they'd be in and out probably in 12 minutes, because if it's a fully developed fire, mm. you can imagine it's the time you can be exposed to the heat rather than the amount of air. This is the main office. This is where all the administration is done. This is where the officers work and the firefighters when they want to do any sort of uh, paperwork. As you can see, we've got filing cabinets for each watch. So there's four of everything at this station. Yeah. Four fridges, four cabinets, four pigeonholes, four sets of everything. Four candles? No four candles, no. Um, got a storeroom with all our consumables, pretty boring stuff. And yeah. guess what we've got? A fire alarm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in here, this is what we call the watch room. Now, years ago, you would actually, someone would stay in here, and it all goes back to the war, where people used to go to the top of the tower and look for the bombs. Okay. That's where it all came from. Yeah. But nowadays, you can imagine, the tower is used for training, and it's just for show, for, when I say for show, a mock building to practice high-rise firefighting. And then the uh, watch room now is all digital. So we've got a bed that used to be in here where someone would stay in the bathroom. As you can see now, we don't use that anymore. That pulls down. <laughs> um, and then we've got a map of where we've been to each house and business and done checks. Okay. So if you can imagine, we've almost done everywhere and we're going to do it all again in the next year. Oh. So what we do is we each watch have an area, red, green, blue and white, and the four watches take ownership of that area and they just go around and literally every street they check their houses to see if there's any issues with access, hydrants, anything. Okay. Everyone gets the same amount of attention from us mm. with our assessment. This is our mobilising system. You know, we can test things. Let's have a look. It's the um, station commander, I'm just testing the bells. Right, so then all you do is you basically press test. This is to call someone down. Officer in charge and duty firefighter to the watch room, please. So that calls something down. This is a PA test, no action required. Oh, there you go. Right, there you go. So that's what it sounds like. Sort of 90s dance tune, isn't yeah, it? Almost. Yeah. So what they would do then is they would um, say which call sign of which appliance. So that's the only difference to a real shout. Okay. So it would say Golf because we're in Golf. This is Northern Command. We've got different prefixes. Yeah. So they would call out whatever fire engine it would like to go to the incident, and then that crew would come downstairs. End of test. Uh, then it would print out here. 
So this is an high quality, uh, high quality, 80s so printer. One thing the fo- with the fire brigade is, if something isn't broken, we don't fix oh, it. No, no, no. no. So although we've got all this modern technology, and we've got things like uh, the BA board, so when people go into buildings, we have battalions and stuff. We still revert back to the old system as a failsafe. <laughs> yeah, so they would tear this off. There should be two here. Yep, one's for the that machine. The other one's for the other machine. If they go on two shelves. Okay. Yeah. You know, and then they've got they've still got an old-fashioned atlas. Yeah. That they can refer to. <laughs> so we don't go on tom toms and things like that. And then what we've got here is they're on duty today. These are the officers on duty today. It's called a roll board. Yeah. So this would have everything on there about who's doing what. So everyone's got a job. So when they turn up, they don't have to say, oh, uh, can you do this, can you do this? They know, straight away. That's why when you think, oh, they don't talk to each other much because they know what they've got to do. Okay. So everyone's got a role when they turn up, either fire, RTC, uh, road traffic collision, sorry, the flooding, stuff like that. Everyone knows what they're doing before they get off the fire engine. And if they don't, the officer in charge briefs them why they're en route. And then each fire we go to, we have these. This came out of the back of a fire where we learned years ago, and this is a, basically a, a nominal roll board. So this would tell you how many people are on the fire engine, the date, what watch they're on. So this is a night shift, and the white one is the day shift, which is on the fire engine. That goes in the fire engine, and when they turn up at a fire, they take that to a command unit or a command vehicle, the one with the flashing lights, yeah. and then they put that in there. And then that basically, if anything happened, you know, God forbid, and there was an evacuation, we know who was on those fire engines. Okay. It's basic, basic but it's, it's a register. Yeah. So that's good to know. So what's some previous, can we look at the printer oh, and see yeah. what's been going on? So, uh, Person stuck in lift. Where's that? You got that? Yeah, so, so we had a person stuck in lift. And when it says non-emergency, that means we don't go with the flashing lights. Yeah. We've got smarter over the years, you know, if someone's saying I'm in the lift, but I'm don't need medication, I'm not in uh, distress. Person with ring stuck on finger. Yeah, we still get them. <laughs> yeah, we still get them. Uh, well, there's an automatic fire alarm in a commercial building. So we still do go to some automatic fire alarms, but it's normally the higher risk buildings. Yeah. Had an RTC, a road traffic accident, and it tells you what they know about that incident as well, a little bit of information. We had a smoke issue in, which basically means some member of the public or members of the public have seen smoke coming out of a building. Sometimes it can be um, a false alarm though still. If, if, if actual smoke's coming out of a building, some buildings um, have artificial smoke to stop burglars. Oh, yeah. um, and then you've got other people, they might have steam coming out of radiators and it could be anything. Yeah. And then a the smell of burning. Nice. Yeah, we found <laughs> that over, over the last, especially in the pandemic, people have been burning a lot of rubbish at home. The cost of disposing of rubbish now has gone up and we actually drive around and we, we do that as part of our thing we actually flag up when we see fly tipping and stuff as well yeah so we, there's a lot of things we do there's a lot of joint working we do now with the council what's the red phone for in the corner say that fails yeah and that fails yeah and the phone fails okay we've got this phone red phone the red phone okay so the red phone has got a direct line to our control every station's got one and it doesn't call anywhere apart from them. So you can pick that up, press that button, and then it calls them. Or if that ever rings, that means that everything's gone down. <laughs> and they're basically the old fashioned, you know, yeah. stringing paper cut system. So that's, that's our backup. Yeah. We've also got, uh, every fire station's got a backup generator. 
Yeah, most of them nowadays have got um, solar energy back up as well. So we're now in the fire bay. We've got the automatic doors. Whack the button. Opens up. Yeah, so this would open up. The reason it's like this is so it's all ready for them to get on. Yeah. Put their gear on. The driver puts their gear in the locker because obviously they can't wear it on, on the way. Yeah. And then en route, they look at a map on the back as well, which is quite new. And there's a map at the front. Okay. And this comes off like an iPad. And they can look at maps of buildings and plans and stuff. Every BA breathing apparatus set for all the people on the fire engine. And they've all got their names on them and the pressure. Okay. That's all the fire gear. So that's where they hang them up. They've got each watch have got their own area. So the station, if you ever see a white helmet, they start at a station officer. That person will be in charge of a fire station with two fire engines or more. Okay. All right. So if you see a white helmet, that means that person's in charge. If you see a white helmet with thicker black lines on it, that means that person's higher than that person. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The first black line and the white helmet is the first white helmet. And then our commissioner has a thick line, which is huge. If you see a diamond on a fire helmet, that's someone who's learning. So it's like a probationer, what I was talking about, or a trainee. Yeah. If you see one line on a fire helmet, that's a leading firefighter. Okay. So that one would be in charge of their crews. If there's two lines on a yellow helmet, that's in charge of a fire engine. White helmet is the one in charge of the station. And the uniforms are properly, obviously, fire retardant. <laughs> yeah. a tough question, but... Yeah, so I'm going back from memory here, but I believe that nothing should burn and stay ignited for more than five seconds. Okay. So that includes the, the fire gear, the gloves, the helmet, the A-set, mm. the breathing apparatus set. It all should self-extinguish if it ever catches on fire. Oh, right. Yeah, so that's yeah. why it's made of all this. It's very, very clever because it's got a sort of uh, internal core which prevents heat coming in, but expels heat from when we're running, bowling out hose mm. and all that sort of stuff. So it's quite good. There's our pole. Oh, there's the actual pole. Yeah. It is actually a pole. Yeah, some of them go up multiple floors. This one is quite a thin one actually, but we still do use it. Yeah. Every fire station, I believe every fire station still got one. I think there may be a couple of new ones that haven't, mm. but most of them that I go in have still got them. So we're next to a fire engine now. Yep. What's so, generally on board? It's opening a locker. We've got a special bag in this one, which you carry up to a high-rise building, so it would have all the basic equipment in a bag. Escape hoods, they're quite new. Escape hoods? Yeah, so these, every firefighter has one on them anyway, but we've got spare ones. They're basically, they give people 15 minutes to go through smoke. So mm -hmm. if you need to go through a corridor or anything with smoke, uh, a member of public could put them on. These are all our hoses. Every fire engine has got 10 big hoses and four thinner hoses. And then we've got two reels, which is like a garden hose, but it's uh, it's more powerful. And how long's a hose in general? Hose about 23, 23 metres, um, depending on if it's been cut and repaired. But they're usually about 23 metres long. Yeah. They all interchange with each other. They're all instantaneous, so they just plug together. There's no screwing involved. Yeah. And uh, there's sufficient hosing to be able to reach any building with a dry riser. That's the idea of all that hose. Ah, that's a dry riser. 
dry riser is just obviously if, if you've been if you're in a block of flats or you ever see one, it's, it's just a, it's just an open steel pipe that goes from the base of the building to the top. Yeah. And we've got the old traditional axes. Yeah. Crowbars and stuff. This is for lifting out of water. It's a sieve. So that screws on the back of here. We can't if we're in the middle of nowhere and there's no hydrants but there's a lake, oh, I see. Yeah, we yeah. can suck out the water as well. That's cool. And then we've even got extinguishers. Yep. We've come round to the back of the fire engine. And then this is all modern now. Everything's digital now, so this is all... Um, I say, all the pumps got a sort yeah. of screen on it, like an iPad. So like I said before, everything's backed up with a fail-safe, so it'll tell you what water's available on there. Yeah. But that is a traditional <laughs> ping-pong ball in a tube of water. Yeah. <laughs> These are airbags, these are for lifting up cars, it's about oh, 20 yeah. a tonne it can lift. So we've got two of them on every appliance, and then we've got traditional lines, which uh, you can throw out of buildings to pull stuff up. Yeah. Saves time and that. Sandbags, that's all first aid stuff. So immediate first aid equipment. Yeah. And this is, we're talking about floodings, so this here, this is an environmental bag, so the environment agency supplies for us, and they are full of uh, like um, oil pads and oh, I see, yeah. uh, things for blocking holes. Really good, that is actually. Same as the other side, really. This hose here, this is one of this is our most powerful one. So on a traditional fire engine, this one basically you you use these straps and you have to anchor it down to the ground, and that there will put out thousands and thousands of liters a minute. And that will drain the tank in like 30 seconds if that was on full blast. But that there is for when you've got, say, a large field with maybe cylinders in it that need cooling. And then uh, this is the driver's uh, BA set. We've got the officer in charges one as well. These are the radios that we have that we use. They're, um, they're intrinsically safe, which basically means that they won't create a spark when they're turned on in a flammable area. Still on that, do you? Yeah, because uh, every fire has got a gas, and if a gas isn't burnt, it's flammable. Or even the burnt gases are flammable. And they're what we call the jewels of life. You see, um, cutting cars open and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, they're... Uh, cool. They're really good. <laughs> Who gets to drive? Any firefighter can drive a fire engine as long as they pass their test. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually uh, firefighters that drive. Leading firefighters can drive, but it's normally to keep their skills up. Then further in the yard is the tower. This is what we used for training. Well, I said years ago in the war, they used to go at the top with binoculars and look for the bombs. Okay. That's where it all started. So what happens now is we do training. Our tallest ladder, which goes up to 14 metres, that would go just up to the top there. And... Um, what we can do is, it's a bit bizarre actually, because we go up there and we sort of squirt water out of the building, which is a bit strange, but it's a tradition that we do, and we see how fast we can get it done. <laughs> um, we've got a training facility as well, scattered around London, where we've got makeshift sort of warrens that we do in the oh, dark, yeah. and yeah. little hatches that we go through, just to confuse ourselves. If you've ever done it at home, you know, you close your eyes or blindfold yourself or get someone to get you uh, a bit disorientated, turn the lights off, and then uh, you watch how, even in your own home, it's easy to get lost. Yeah, I bet. So, uh, imagine going in a building you've never been in before and it's really, really big. We've got to make sure the way we go in is the same way we come out. Mm. So we train on that more than anything. That's probably the most 
crucial bit of training we do. Yeah. We do it in all our kit and our breathing apparatus and stuff. That's it, really. And over there, we've got a sort of a welfare area. It's sort of... Oh, nice uh, garden. Yeah, a little garden, some pretend grass. and That's uh, some competitions we do sometimes where um, you can win a prize, actually, and who's got the nicest garden. <laughs> a bit difficult when you've got a concrete yard. But, yes. Uh, yeah, so we've got that over there. Ricelip, we've got a really nice one. If, if you ever go to Ricelip, um, they've got a really nice little garden as you go in the gates on the right-hand side. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Watch out for that. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Glenn. That's this right. has been uh, really uh, educational. Yeah, no Big thanks to Glenn at Hillingdon Fire Station. Now, lastly, this month, if you visit the Wednesday Craft Market in the pavilions, you may know Shan and Phil Baker, who make and sell cakes, biscuits, jams and chutneys. They invited me round to their house with the offer of homemade sandwiches and cakes, so how could I refuse? They live in a very interesting house with lots of souvenirs of travels and a dining room currently full of Christmas puddings. First off, though, I had to see the road sign and the chickens. Hello, man, we're ready for you. Hello. Now, look, do you see that? The sign on the front? Yes. Well, Middleton Road, that sign over there, was fell off. So we made one and put it on Middleton Road and the council went ape <laughs> and made us take it down. So we put a very nice road sign. We got all the bits of tile from people down the road, <laughs> banged it up and Porter Tools gave us a bit of stuff. So, hey, that's a bit of history to start you off. There's the chickens. Have you said hello to them? No, not yet. They're chickens. very friendly, yes. How many chickens have Two. you got? They're called Pale and Dark and they're very matey. Hello, girls. Hello. Say hello. There you go. Nice, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> They're laying a lot of eggs, actually. They're doing very well. We have to protect them very carefully at night because the foxes get in there. Ah, of course, we yes. We lock them in. Just the two? Just the two, pale and dark. You can see which is which. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, oh, right, great. Come in, we've got your lunch ready. He's here, I've shown him the sign and the chickens. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Well, thank you. Come this in. Is on, Welcome. This is on my, there's 2,000 tiles in this floor. 2,000? Yes, probably more actually. Not laid by you, surely? No, stand the tile up. Built the floor underneath. Built the floor underneath. Nice, isn't it? We've got a mural front room. Yes. By a local artist. She did all the painting. I say. <laughs> That's amazing. And you'd be interested. Come and have your look. Is there a basement as well in these houses? No, or not? You don't get a basement, no. No. Now, if we had a basement, we wouldn't have our dining room as a junk room. <laughs> ah, yes. That's, that's all our Christmas cakes there. Yeah, that's all that we're feeding all them. Maturing. We feed them with brandy every week. I see, this is the storeroom. Yeah, come on in, have a look. It was a wonderful dining room, as you can see, with a tented ceiling. But um, it's gone a bit pear-shaped now. Okay. <laughs> it was great fun doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These are for the kids, the waivers. All the kids like the waivers. <laughs> so how many Christmas cakes have you got here waiting well, to go? I think we've got about, um, we did 48 last year. I think we've got 36 so far. We've got another 12 of these little ones to do. They make lovely presents. Oh, I bet, and, you yes. know, they're, they're all iced and nice. We do them on a little tile. They, they are splendid. Yeah. Make them in pea tins. Oh, so you're recycling too? Uh, yeah. Refa they're cut tins in they're half. They're Farrow's pea tins, yeah. They're a perfect, they're perfect size. size. Yeah. We've had those for years. 
Yes, a lot of peas one year. <laughs> Come in. So this is the gallery. Yes. This floor is from a chapel in Harwich. And we, we picked it all up and brought it here and laid it. This looks nice, doesn't it? It does, yes. Parquet floor. Yeah. Nice, thick, thick proper tiles. There's the bird. You've got a uh, window <laughs> through or, to or the bird. He's, he's, he's taking it oh. all in. He's going to slowly take all this in. This is the aviary. So what birds have we got in here? We've got 70 birds in there. We've got um, a load of finches, canaries, a couple of cockatiels and one little quail down on the bottom. Ah. He zips about. They're breeding. We have to take their eggs out every week. We have far too many birds. So you get local kids obviously walking past. Oh, the kids love them. Yeah. On the, the way, school and back, because Whitehall's just up the road. We've actually got grannies who come and say, I used to come. Oh, wow. Because they've been there 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they That's go great. straight through the wire, the little ones. But they, don't, they won't come in here. That's their home. They've been born there. Oh, I see. That's funny, isn't it? Then we come on through to the rest of the, and then we've got a huge cactus, you've got to see that, because he's magnificent. I say. So we've got a magnificent cactus. That's a good cactus. Yeah, and these have been nice as well. Look. So this is the, that is the end. It's the end of the, of the house, the end, yes. but it goes through to... This garage. The garage. And we put mirrors out there, which confuses your eyes. Yes. Which is quite interesting. <laughs> You see the kiwis? Just oh, you've got loads of kiwis. Kiwis? Yeah, loads. I'll give you, we'll give you some. <laughs> oh, yes. Who would have thought kiwis would grow in the UK? Yeah, there's loads. You see how many? There's hundreds in here. We're going to, we're going to harvest them this week because they're a bit, they're a bit hard still. So oh, they yeah. need to be ripened. They're full of vitamin C, aren't they, they're kiwis? Very, they're very, very good healthy. For you. Yeah, I don't, we've tried making chutney with them it didn't work out very well kiwi chutney yeah we had a go we used them instead of apples but these would bring them in We're, they need ripening yes these are almost succulents yeah as you can <laughs> see yeah these are from these are from an old railway line up in lincolnshire that they were had taken apart so we rescued them they were tripping thrown in the ditches so signs yes great northern railway public warning not to trespass yes they're nice, rather nice, they? aren't they? Yeah. When Beeching took the tracks up, they obviously just dumped the signs, yeah. and so they, you know, we just happened, we were just following old railway lines, yeah. which were just tracks now, and in the ditches there were all these signs. Gosh. I mean, they were attached to the old posts that yeah. were holding them up, so we took them off and brought them home. And they'll last forever, won't they? Because they're yeah. solid yeah, they signs. Iron, yeah. yeah. So you've been here for how long? 81 we came here. When I was at the stall last time, you were telling me about your adventures and the uh, cross deserts and things. Yeah. Oh yes, we do a lot of deserts. Is that still all going or is that in the uh, past now? Well, we've still yeah. got the land road. We're, we're selling it. Selling actually. it, yeah. We used to go down to Morocco regularly. Oh, wow. But um, we just got older and uh, it, it's a... It's a hassle. There's some pictures of us in the desert. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hassle getting there. You know, I love the fact that you're called Shannon Phil Baker. <laughs> it's good. And you're Baker. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, I like that as well. <laughs> it's very good. We've always cooked. I mean, my mother said, your father couldn't boil an egg. I'm going to teach you to cook. And that was it. So, you know, we, yeah. we cooked forever. That's and great. And the stool's been going for how long? Five years? Four years? Maybe longer than that. Yeah. 
Phil was an air traffic controller. Oh, wow. But that's why we live around here, really, isn't it? I was in the Air Force. Yeah. I had several careers in the Air Force. I started off as an electronics technician, which is why I'm still doing loads of electronics. And uh, I decided that I wanted to be an air traffic controller. And so they said, no problem, get a commission, you'd be an air traffic controller. So I got a commission and became an air traffic controller, which is the best job in the world. Quite stressful there, I would have thought, wasn't it? it? It's intense. It's only stressful if it goes wrong. Yeah. Pilots are the worst. They so don't listen, but Phil anyway, was one that's of another the instructors story. down at Swanwick, you know, the new air traffic centre. Ah. And I just retired, so I was... 2001. 57, I do tired. 2001, that's right. And so we, we went down there and lived for six days down there and three days back up here. Mm. So we had a house sitter who was wonderful. But I got bought, a bit bored down there, so I went to the local WI, and that's where I started baking for them. Uh, yeah. We always made bread. We, this is how we make bread. Oh, cool. Yeah, which you must try. <laughs> Thank you very much. She's in, um, bacon and egg, they are. After I'd left the Air Force and done loads of different jobs, I met one of my old RAF colleagues who was looking for people to join IBM, as it then was, to mm. get the new air traffic centre going. This was in the late 90s. And so I joined a small team. There were three of us. We were contractors working for mm. IBM and then Lockheed Martin. And it just got delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And uh, the training that Lockheed and... IBM had put together was for techie people it wasn't for air traffickers at all when it all went pear-shaped and Nat said enough is enough we're going to have a two-year hiatus you will get it right so we binned all the training and started again from an air traffic perspective we put together the training course over a course of 18 months and then when they started training the existing controllers were still working at the old centre at West Drayton, which you may, you knew the, what, there was a huge mm. air traffic centre at West Drayton for the whole of the south of the UK. And so they would come down for two days and train on the new kit on the simulator, and then they go away, and then they come back for another two days so that they built up their expertise. Highly technical, which I really enjoyed, mm. and uh, air traffic. Did it ever go wrong or did you have any nervous moments? It, or? It, it worked extremely well. They waited until I think about three days after Christmas because all the traffic goes down. They ran I think a week with the guys at West Drayton plugged in listening to all the comms so that they could jump in if something went wrong mm. and the new controllers slowly built up, built up as the traffic built up and um, in the end, they said, fine, we've just pulled the plug at restaurant right. and everybody moved down. So it was fine. Hmm. Well, nobody crashed into Concord once. That was the most stressful day of my life. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, trying to take out Concord was <laughs> not the best idea. <laughs> <laughs> not my fault, thank goodness. Basically, there still are, but it's a lot freer now because the aircraft talk to each other electronically. But in those days, we had all these lanes in the sky, airways, and they're very defined geographically and vertically. And the military had a set of what were called corridors. You spoke to the civil guy, because we were in two separate control rooms, obviously lots of comms between them. And there was a corridor at 28,000 feet that basically went from Swindon down towards the Salisbury Plain. 
Mm. And it crossed the main east-west airway, which ran from Cardiff to London. I had a Hercules, was going down 28,000 feet, which was the height of the corridor. Contacted the civil guy and said, here's my airplane, da 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 can I have the rights to go through the corridor? And civil, if they say yes, are obliged to keep out of the way. When I noticed Concorde coming off Heathrow and he starts climbing, I also knew that Concorde climbed initially to 28,000 feet. So I'm watching Concorde coming out and he's going 26, 27, 27 and a half. And my Hercules was about three miles away and I screamed at this Hercules, instant left turn, panic, panic, panic. Well, you know, it was quite controlled. What you said. So this Hercules went, ah! And the radar updates every 15 seconds. So you've got Concorde climbing up, the Hercules coming along, and every 15 seconds they're getting like this, <laughs> and then like this, and they were about two miles distance. The Concorde just kept climbing. The controller forgot to tell him. Wow. <laughs> but two miles is, seems quite a long way, but actually, probably the minimum is 10. Oh, right. At that height. <laughs> mm. I said to the pilot, do you want to report this? He said, that sure is a beautiful looking aeroplane. So I said, okay, back on your own navigation. We'll try and sort this out. And the civil chief came sprinting in. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I had an investigation and I was absolved. So, you know, that was it basically. Because everything is recorded. You did come home a bit white though. Everything is recorded. <laughs> the radar, the, the audio, no, you know, so the transmission. Thank you. And all the telephones. So. These are very filling. It's not heavy bread. But it's very dense. Yeah. So it makes you full up. So baking stories. Oh, baking stories. Yes. Okay. So you've got jam. Yeah. Chutneys. Yeah. And biscuits, cakes. Hot things. Hot things. Maybe a lot of chilli, yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's been going on for a few years. But you started at the... Country markets in Rice. Country market at Rice. Mm. I used to get up at four in the morning and do fresh bread stuff for them. Okay. Which was fine. We used to get in hot and Chelsea buns. We used to do really well there, actually. Mm. I must admit, getting up at four in the morning is a bit of a trial. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, we, I don't know when we started on this market, do you? We've always sold to people around. <laughs> so, we always cook extra when we're cooking our dinners, and all the extra goes into tubs in the freezer, and then people come and buy it, basically. Oh, I see. So, we've got a lot of elderly men who like home cooking who come up here and buy beef stew and bits and pieces and that's lovely just like cooking yeah. mm. just what we do that's better than buying sort of um, pre-prepared yes, microwave meat yeah it's a proper dinner mm. yeah so if you have a jacket potato one of our tubs will do your dinner basically mm. yeah we charge the wild sum of a pound for them I think they're very very cheap yes <laughs> and soup we do as well Oh, soup for now would be great, wouldn't it, in the winter? Mm. Yes, Phil's just about deepest parsnips and heat. We do a curry parsnip soup, that's lovely, isn't it? It's really nice. We've got two allotments. Ah. So we've got a little fruit from the jam. <laughs> yes. So where's the allotments? Down yeah. at Fascinage. Oh, yeah. It's in a dreadful state, I'm afraid. So you've got some work to do in the allotments. Yeah, well, it's been a very busy summer. Mm. I mean, we've had loads of stuff off it, but mm. basically it's weed patch with a lot of produce oh, in. <laughs> we sell a lot of jam to Copas Picurone over at Ivor, Lander. Oh, yes. And he buys masses, doesn't he? And doesn't have to sell it. <coughs> a cake. Maybe a small piece. 
I've got in touch more pieces. Yes. Okay, so lemon drizzle. Oh, my favourite. Oh, good. <laughs> tales of the House, if you're interested in Tales of the House. We were here one evening, probably over ten years ago, and we get a phone call, and this guy said, uh, Hello, I'm the Metropolitan Police. I'm yes. Chief Inspector XYZ. Can we come and talk to you? And he said, <laughs> Yeah. So he said, um, Can I come tomorrow evening? So he said, uh, we've chosen your place if you wouldn't mind because we want to do a bit of surveillance on the house across the road. So he, so he said, um, we will need the room for a few days, but we will need a whole room and there'll be a team of people up there. So he said, oh, okay. And he said, uh, can we have a look in the attic? because we had an attic in those days Um, this will be perfect he said uh, are you sure you're all right with this he said (laughs) I'll send the technical team in yeah okay anyway two nights later we've got a radio transmitter in the attic we've got a bunch of guys in here with a whole load of recorders and data links and it turned out that they had cameras in the St Andrew's Church and another camera on the what is now the Hertz building and another camera out of our back window hmm. and they were up there recording and they come in at 10 o'clock at night and they go swap over at 10 o'clock in the morning and they were friendly and they used to buy things and, and, <laughs> you know, and basically they just sit up there and chat away and we didn't hear much about them so um, one of them was just well he said I'm Sergeant XYZ he said, uh, I'm afraid this is going on a bit longer. Is that all right? Because he said, we've had people who get fed up on these long surveillance and kick us out. And yes, I said, well, no, you know, we're not using it for anything else, which we weren't in those days. So fine. Anyway, it sort of went on and on. So I said, look, can you find out how long this is going to be? And he said, well, it's getting quite near the, the, the crux. So, okay. I was working down at Swanwick. So I'm down at Swanwick get a phone call she said it's all over they've gone (laughs) and it turned out that three guys who lived up in one of the flats over there were the fertilizer bombers do you remember they tried they were they collected ton and a half of fertilizer and they were going to bomb central london with it so they were going to make this huge bomb we didn't know at the time and apparently someone at the store it was one of these Red Tower stores. Thought it was a called. bit odd, didn't they? Uh, thought it was a bit odd that these guys were bringing in sacks of uh, fertilizer. So he contacted the police and they tested it and found it was fertilizer. That it was in plain bags. So they swapped it for something that was quite um, innocuous. Yeah. But they continued the surveillance. And uh, of course, I wasn't here. Sham was. They all That's rushed out. Fun. There were a million police oh, cars and people with guns and they totally Loved surrounded it, it and it. arrested these guys and took yeah. them all away. The next and next day uh, we had every newspaper. Every going. newspaper, yeah. They kept knocking the and thought it would grow nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing. What did you know? What did you know? Well, we didn't know. We just saw the police turn and up. And the evening standard so. bought rabbits, because they had pet rabbits up there, yeah, didn't yeah. they? And evening standard bought them rabbit food. Yeah, he said, where can I buy rabbit food? The evening standard saving the bombers' rabbits. So <laughs> funny, wouldn't it? <laughs> Anyway, we had a, a phone call that evening and the guy said, thank you ever so much. And I said, well, look, 
we sort of half run a B&B. It would be nice to have some <laughs> compensation. So we said, oh, I'll arrange it, I'll arrange it. A week later, ring, ring. Can we come and see you? Said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he turned up and he said, there you go. It gave us £500 in 50s. <laughs> Signed a piece of paper. And we never heard from them again. That's it. <laughs> It's great fun. There's such a lot of cake, didn't yeah. it? Well, because you imagine up there, the smell of cake must have been overwhelming. Oh, that's cruel, isn't it? It was cruel. <laughs> it was cruel. In the end, they were found guilty and yeah, sent down for life. Thank you. Crikey, it all happens, doesn't it? That's Did that whistle go? Yeah, so the market, we have the um, the cakes and the biscuits. And lockdown was the, the hand, which I quite like. Oh, the hand was great fun, yes. wasn't it? The hand was good fun. <laughs> Yeah, well, Obviously, there was an issue with uh, people handling money and passing it between you. Yes. So you invented the um, the hand device. Well, it was people on the other side of the store, and you know. So we thought, what can we do? And I thought, oh, I'll make a hand. A so hand. It's, uh, it's really good. Well, here it comes. Actually. Yes. It works. <laughs> it's very good. Inside is it, a spare uh, Victorian <laughs> staircase spindle. Yeah. I think it's really good, the hand. So we've got a long a long stick, which yeah. is made out of, as you say, a Victorian staircase spindle, and yeah. an actual hand. Well, actual I just hand. drew around yeah. it and cut it out. Hand. And a Tupperware pot on yes. top, which you put the money in to give people... Everybody loves it. We still use it all the time, don't we? Because everyone likes <laughs> well, it's it it's become so much. A, a thing now. <laughs> it has. A hand. Idiot selling jam with a hand on a stick. It's quite yeah. a camaraderie in the market, I it suppose, is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, with the other stallholders. Yeah. There's a lot of new ones, which Heidi changed a lot. Heidi's done a really good job, and her husband, since lockdown, of course. Yeah, it's been horrible, hasn't it? We didn't realise how beautiful where we live is. All the walks you can go on. The walks, I mean, along the Freys, and the art gallery under the A40. Have you been along? Yes, yes. wonderful. (laughs) It's hard to get there, isn't it? But once you're there... Oh, it's fabulous. Because we went down there, and a couple of girls came up with a load of um, emulsion paint, and they just motion over one <laughs> the new one which was brilliant you know yeah. she said which is the worst yeah, she like said that oh that's so crap it's just, yeah. just a motion over the top M- do motion over the wall because there must be ch- about ch- I don't know, with them. 20 arches all oh, the way least, down yeah. yeah in fact the calendar that end yeah, if you get the calendar the last last month's calendar had a picture of you and there if it wasn't so hard to oh, get right. to, it would be great to use yeah. it as a sort of community space. Yes, that's yeah. it. Well, it, it, it is in effect now a community space it, yeah. because they've but put up new fences the, uh, and they've put uh, bins, dump yeah. bins at the end. Perhaps the anarchy of the, the place is in. part of its charm, though, don't you think? Yeah. It, it, it's got to be sort of rough, hasn't it? It can't definitely. be too nice. <laughs> yeah, you don't want a cafe there. No, definitely not. <laughs> you need it, it needs to be like that. Yeah, just the access is a bit tricky, isn't it? Yeah, you like to walk is. down off of um, Harefield Road. Yeah. yeah. Through the river or there. Or you can walk all the way up through, was it? Fraysbourne, close Fraysbourne. The Fraze, back of like um, Bucks University, that walk all the way up the river. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah, that's the, that's yeah you can walk up yeah. the tow yeah. path, well, the footpath. But it, yeah, I think it's Where fantastic. the old railway line was. Love it. Or come from the other end, I suppose, park at Denham Country Park. Yeah. And then walk down the canal. Yeah, so, a lot yeah. of people just park in the lay-by. Yes. Yeah, there's that, and as you say, the the Fraze River, the walk down to Little Britain is lovely as well. That, oh, that Little part. Britain's exquisite, isn't it? Yes, I like Little Britain very much. You go yeah. litter picking with our litter picker around there. Yes, we didn't find any last time, did we? It was really clean. <laughs> During lockdown, <clears throat> I've got turn of the last century maps online, so you can just go and have a look at what the place was like. Oh yes, about 1900. 
And I found a 1900 map, and there was this huge house, Huntsmere House. Yeah, which is really um, weird. It's completely Right gone, alongside right? the <coughs> Little Britain Lake. Mm. So um, I stuck the coordinates into a GPS. We went down and had a look. Wandered about and for it's ages. Completely, completely gone. gone. It, 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 was all, it, it had a hugely long history. Yeah, it's a cultural school there in and the 20s. There's a huge um, avenue of trees, mm. which what made us particularly interesting mm. and uh, there's tiles and little bits and pieces mm. down there but it's worth it's, a look uh, about there yeah, it's quite completely nice gone. There. yeah do you know uh, where we mean um, it, it, it makes sense because you walk down the Fraser river yeah. the way the trees are arranged <coughs> it has that feel of a sort yes, of country house yes, or an estate yes it does and, we, and there's some odd bits of brickwork and and they were where the, they had fancy bridges because we found some photographs actually fancy bridges across to join yeah. The, the various bits of water. Yeah, they had their own yeah. water, obviously yeah. dug. I mean, it dates back to the 18th century. Yeah. Um, and they had these incredibly ornate gardens. So we found some photographs. And and it's just uh, nothing there some at paintings. all. You think there'd be something and, and it, there? It's totally nothing. gone. I think it'd be worth a dig down there. I bet there'd be I loads think it of would. stuff. Yeah. A bit of detectoring down there. So I we did that when good. we were all locked down and not supposed to go yeah. anywhere. That was our well, you could do one hour exercise a day, couldn't you? Oh, yeah. crawl oh, that's what the we M25. did. Have you done the crawl under the M25? No. That's another good one as Where's well. That? You go down under the River Colne and you walk along. The Colne splits into Colne Brook, which goes down yeah. the Iver side, and the Colne goes down this so side. So it's on the Iver Road, just, just as you go over the Colne, there's a little path up to the left, and you go off down there, and you have to crawl under the M25. And where it goes under the M25, yeah. It's on a curve, so yeah. the the road is quite <laughs> steeply banked, actually. You don't realise it when you drive it. Uh, and where the Colm Brook goes underneath, yeah. there was a footpath, and they put the footpath in. You start off walking at full height, and you end up having to crawl at the far <laughs> end. Good. And when you pop out the other end, someone has done a really nice hand-painted sign saying, this really is the way to Uxbridge or something. Because <laughs> right. you've got yeah, to go fun, down under it's the motorway. It's really nice wood. It's a real Tolkien wood. It's got branches all and it all creaks and groans. And, and yeah, there's, there's trees and falling there's down on trees. And, in, and it's just that wonderful... I think there was one that's quite, been struck by it's lightning. It's mysterious in there, isn't it? Yeah. Like by the river. It's definitely yeah. a sort of six to nine-year-old yeah. walk that is with lots of imagination. It's really yeah. nice. Oh, great, yeah. It's a nice walk. Yeah, there. it is. But as you say, yeah, lockdown was lots of places you haven't been to before, yeah, exploring them on your doorstep. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> so... Continuing the tour. Oh, yes. Upstairs, apparently. Yeah, come and have a look. We'll see it's what worth Phil seeing. Built. Oh, it is. Oh, it is. So, we'll tell you about everything as we go along. That's my grandmother, and she was a cook. Right. In uh, Rocking- Rockingham Castle. So, you see? And there she is when she was 90, so she's done oh, all right, and yes. I've still got her locket. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Looking forward to this. <laughs> this is our gallery with our pictures of our family. So this is all family, and there's a ten-year difference, so we're getting older. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's my sister and her family. Lovely. Yeah, there we go. This is our this is our, our lodger's sitting room, which doesn't usually have any washing in it. So this is lodger's sitting room. It's got a fridge. So if you need anyone wants a, a suite of rooms, it's yes. here. Okay. So this is a sitting room. This is his sitting room. Yeah. This is his bathroom. But I would, I would urge you to just walk into the shower. Right. <coughs> just walk into the shower. Head into the shower. Okay. There you go. 
What's going to happen? You, oh, you see what happens? Oh, I see. It's a double. That's a great feature, isn't it? <laughs> double beach. They film, film, film made it. So that when you get the shower, you get a nice view of the beach. That's amazing. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. I thought you'd like that. <laughs> oh, Roger loves it. <laughs> is it flashing or what's it? No, it's when you go in, it, when you go, when you get, when you stand in it, it'll be on all the time. Oh, I see. When you come out, it's just it. That's great. There you go. A little bit of technical genius there. Technical, yeah. And this is our lodger's bedroom, you see, so we've got a little suite of rooms. Oh, I see. So, so you if you know anyone bedroom. who wants a... Uh, let's see, 600 quid a month we charge. I think it's quite reasonable. Definitely. Bedroom, oh, so bedroom, bathroom, bathroom and, yeah. his, and his sitting room. Up there. When we get round to it. Is Milton. Oh, Milton? Yeah, Milton. We bought Milton in Zimbabwe. Okay, how'd you get it home? And we took his tail off and he went in the hold. They oh. wrapped him up for yeah. us. This is, from, um, this is from Kyrgyzstan. Right, it's a rug. A felt rug from Kyrgyzstan, yeah. These are from Kenya. These are Mars. These are Nigeria. Uh, these are Namibia, and this I think Botswana, isn't it? I think it might have been. All your travel souvenirs. Well, we had yes. our we had our kids yes. when we were very young. Yeah. And was eighteen when she had Simon. Yeah. Um, so we as we got them up and travelled afterwards. Once yeah. the kids yeah. left home and yeah. we started earning some more money, yeah, we that's, started that's travelling. Yeah. <laughs> this is another piece of art. That's the lady. She did the mural, but she just, we did that room. just for that. Isn't it great? That's great, yeah. Isn't it good? Very warming colours. Yeah, lovely. We wanted something jolly. This is what Phil built. Ah. This is our mezzanine. We bought all it was the, a loft, yeah. We bought all the ironwork back from Morocco <laughs> on our land trophy. Right. <laughs> so we've got a mezzanine level and it's got yeah. a ironwork. Balcony, isn't it? And over here, we've got a lavvy shower, our own bit in here. It's a TARDIS, isn't so it? So we're completely self-contained in here. With a lav and everything. That's great. So you sew as well. Oh, all sewing the time. and um, oh, all shams clothes. Yeah, all I make everything. Yeah. Have, a look up, have a look upstairs in our bedroom. It's got nice. Well, up if there. you go up, climb up, and look. So I'm going into the into the what was the loft? It's a nice place up there. It's sort of we, uh, it feels <coughs> nice. We didn't want to have staircase, which technically you need to have. Uh, fire doors everywhere and all this stuff and our daughter had had uh, a bedroom shoehorned into her Georgian house in Brighton yeah a brilliant architect hey, so we asked him if he could yeah. design this and he said well technically if you have a gallery it's not part it's not a separate room yeah. so you don't have to have fire doors yeah. so he designed it and uh, I love it it's nice isn't it it is, this yeah. It's all steel. Here, so it's all cantilevered out on I steel. I gutted it all, and yeah. uh, J.M. Steels down on the Denham Road did all the steel work, and I did all so the So I rest. think it cost us 15 grand. It wasn't very much, no. was it? Because you did all the work, basically. It's amazing. It took a year yeah, off took in 2004. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that piece of art's lovely, and it? It's joyous. She we took a photograph of um, space. It was from space about the, the Sahara like running into the jungle and that's what was sort of inspired her. Yeah. We had a proper unveiling. We got all the neighbours in and we unveiled it and she came and we had <laughs> such a nice time. It was proper. Yeah, we all it. sat up here drinking champagne and going fist. I love that picture. It's got to stay with the house. I think that when we die, it's got to stay here, hasn't yeah. it? I don't know if people will like it. <laughs> it's joyous, isn't it? It is, yes. yeah. I love it. 
no, this is a good workspace. It's a nice space up here. Isn't well, it's we light, here isn't it? And yeah. it's, it's airy, yeah. I think. That's what makes yeah, it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And we've got the corner. We can nose everything. We know where everything's going on. Well, I see, Because yes. we can nose out and see what's going round. It's really good. <laughs> and we're very nosy, which is fabulous. Well, I guess when you retire, yeah. you know, you different things, different That's perspectives definitely, on life. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so back downstairs... Yeah. The cooking and the and the yeah. cake making and the there didn't seem to be much in terms of ovens going on, but oh, in fact, we've got the other oven, have we? We've ah. got two ovens. It's a secret oven. We've got a secret oven. Yeah. <coughs> this is one of my my creations. Well, that's nice, yeah. It is nice, isn't it? <coughs> yeah, I might put it on the market and sell it. I don't know. Ju gave me a bit of fabric. It's pretty, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So our mm. next door neighbour works with Sanderson, so we get loads of offcuts oh, and short lengths. Oh. So we've got this oven here. Which is the gas oven. Yeah. Okay. And then we've got this one up here. Ah, there's a secret oven, so I see. We've got a it. secret oven, yeah. We have a secret oven. Ah, that makes more here. sense now, yes. So electric's great for the cakes, etc. And we've got all the various out here. Everything's sort of stored at you. Various stores and bits. Yeah. I was going to say, how do you make it? all these cakes out of one oven? Yeah. But that's the, yeah, that's right. That's the answer. Yeah. And we use an electric plug-in induction hob for all the jam. Yeah. Because that's really cheap to run. And we've got solar panels on the roof, so ah, you wait till the sun comes out and make a jam. Yeah, that makes sense. So if you're the only one who wants a room, we'd be redecorating, wouldn't we? Yeah, I think it's probably it's New tired. Year now. It needs sorting out. It needs sorting out. We need a sort of country hotel look, and we need to do something a bit different. It's tired. <laughs> yeah. We might go a bit Moroccan, I think. Oh, another Moroccan look. Yeah, yeah nice warm colours. That sounds good colours. fun, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. With that big rug, we could put that rug in there, I think. Quite look good. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got a handmade Moroccan rug as well. Yeah. We could put on the wall. Right, I should probably love you and leave you. And thank, thank you very much for the lunch. But um, I love that there's some element of bonkerism around still. <laughs> it's kind of like, like this eccentric, eccentric English people. We need a bit of that. I'll see you soon. I'll head back. Nice to see you. <laughs> Take care, Phil. Good, yeah. Have a good weekend. Thank you. <laughs> Shannon, Phil, the bakers. Make sure to pop and see them Wednesdays at the Pavilions Market for jams, chutneys, biscuits and cakes. Now, just had news through from Santa about two trips for kids going on. We're not going to ask how he manages to be in two places at the same time, but first off, Hillingdon Narrowboats are running Santa boat trips up the canal and back. Visit Santa in his grotto. There's drinks, mince pies, a picture and a gift. Trips are running on the first few weekends in December. Details are hna.org.uk. And Ryslip Lido Railway have their usual Santa train rides at the Lido on the 5th, 11th, 12th and 18th of December. Check out ryslipleidorailway.org slash events. And that's all for this month. To get in touch, email studio at uxbridgefm.co.uk. Check out the website, uxbridgefm.co.uk, where there's loads more local content. Join us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search Uxbridge FM. And if you're listening on a podcast app, make sure to subscribe. Thanks to our guests, to Chris Allen for helping out, and to local musician Luca Nieri for the music. We'll be back next month when we'll dig out the mince pies, mulled wine and sleigh bells. Talk to you then.